Hello, welcome to the Ormstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. As ever, we'll bring you exclusive and original stories and interviews offering agenda-setting insight from inside the game from David and our writers from across The Athletic. Coming up today, all you need to know about the appointment of Mikhail Arteta and what makes him tick. How does he compare with Carlo Ancelotti? Uh, we'll examine Ed Woodward's position at Manchester United and discuss the reasons why football audiences are falling in the Premier League and the Champions League. It is Christmas week, so that means you can't be bothered to write a column this week. Pretty accurate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Taking yeah. my foot off the gas. Is that allowed? That's absolutely allowed. You've had a very busy time of it. There's I no w- one around at this time of the year to speak to. Oh, no sources. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Ketchup, right. Ketchup, mustard, <laughs> others are available. Uh, let's uh, let's talk Mikhail Arteta. Uh, just on the appointment itself and the relationship between Arsenal and Manchester City, which doesn't appear to have been particularly good during these talks. Would that be fair? That's accurate. Manchester City were particularly put out uh, that Arsenal's executive didn't speak to their uh, Man City counterparts about the Arteta issue in the director's box when they were together at the meeting between the two clubs at the Emirates Stadium last weekend. Uh, An ideal opportunity. Certainly publicly, the relationship was pretty acrimonious. Not from Arsenal's end, more from Manchester City's, that they didn't feel Arsenal went about it in the right way. They didn't make contact, as I said, in the director's box. And still, until that Wednesday night and, and into Thursday, members of the media were being told there's been no contact. Truthfully, that would surprise me if there was no contact because the head of football at Arsenal, Raul Sanlehi, and the Manchester City director of football, Chiki Bagiris, they know each other really well. Maybe it was just being done with Arteta and Arsenal were playing hardball. The word coming out of Arsenal was that it wasn't true that there was no contact. And I've learned a little bit more about the backroom staff that may actually create a little bit more friction between the two clubs. And that's an entirely different question. Right. Backroom staff very shortly because we have had a question about that. Um, you can always uh, send questions in uh, for the pod throughout the week and then we'll try and answer them. The professor has asked a question on Arteta's backroom staff. Before we go on to the man himself and who he might be bringing with him or who will be appointed alongside him. Whose appointment is this Arsenal? Given we've discussed they have numerous individuals within this footballing hierarchy and if he's a success, will more people try and put their names to his appointment? (laughs) And if he fails, will several people try and distance themselves from his appointment? Well, it was interesting... In an interview on the Arsenal website with Raul Sanlehi, the head of football, and Edu, the technical director, um, Raul Sanlehi said that it was Edu's recommendation as technical director to the Cronkies, Stan, the owner, and Josh, his son, who's also a director. So Raul Sanlehi very clearly um, putting this on Edu's shoulders in, in a positive way. As a technical director, you probably imagine would make the recommendation or should in that continental model. Um the panel was made up of Raul Sanlehi, Edu, Venkateshem, Vinay Venkateshem, the, the managing director, and Hasfami, the head of football operations, the contracts man. People within the game feel that this is an appointment and the major football decisions at Arsenal are really led by Raul Sanlehi. Um, and so in terms of credit or, or criticism further down the line, I think it's quite likely to to come his way either way. 
and he might not like that. He doesn't really like the public acclaim that he has um, generated, especially around the transfer window last summer where he was being nicknamed Don Raul and people were sort of coming up to him and, and cheering him and and, um, and bombarding him with praise. He, it really didn't sit well with him. But he is the man within football circles when you talk to people at other clubs who is recognised as the sort of decision maker at Arsenal. And... Edu's been there for a much shorter time, don't forget. Uh, he came in after the Copper America. So, you know, he's only been in the club since mid-July. It's still very early stages for him now. And that's why I feel even in transfer windows, we're not going to really be apportioning credit or blame to Edu, maybe until next summer. One person I was speaking speaking to said that Edu from quite early on was was not feeling that Unai Emery was the right appointment for the, for the club. And, um, and so... Perhaps now he's starting to exert a greater influence, but Raul Sanlehi is spearheading this forward, even though they're presenting it as a sort of united front. Uh, let's uh, bring the Athletics' Adam Crafton into this conversation because uh, he sat down uh, with Mikel Arteta when he was a coach at Manchester City for uh, the only extensive English interview that Arteta has done. Hi, Adam. Hello. How Hi, are Adam. You? Uh, is he more Wenger, who he played for, or Guardiola, who he's been assistant to? It's a really interesting one, isn't it? I, th- I think he was pro- he's probably evolved over the last few years. I think growing up in the Barcelona academy, he would have, you know he'd be a lot of Guardiola. They'll, they'll share huge amounts in common in terms of their ideals, their footballing vision. But I also don't think Wenger and Guardiola are so far apart. Guardiola is almost the evolved version of Wenger, isn't he? But in terms of you know if you were buying a ticket to watch a football match in the late 90s, early 2000s, it would always be Arsenal that were the most beautiful expression of football, which is how Arteta liked, you know, in that interview, he talked about growing up watching that Barcelona dream team and just seeing it as the most, the, the, the style of football that put a smile on your face. There's been so much discussion about the personalities within the Arsenal squad and whether they're headstrong or whether they can't be bothered sometimes or whether they're maverick. You know, if you read Adam's interview with Arteta I mean this bit is fascinating football is about habit and angles Arteta says to Adam it's much more simple for a player if you can process the image of where your teammate will be before receiving the ball if I'm in the kitchen and I know the glasses are always in the cupboard I get my glass of water more quickly if my wife starts moving the glasses from one cupboard to another every day you go crazy it takes longer to get your glass of water it's the same with football if you have a clear methodology and are always looking around it improves your performance it's not always short passes if you know your wide man is hugging the touchline first touch ping it's there Paul Scholes was excellent at that for example so it's not ticky tacker it's not you know playing passes for the sake of it but it is drilling footballers to get to the stage where it becomes a habit well what we don't know is how that compares to what Unai Emery was trying we heard good things coming out of Unai Emery in the early days but there will be lots of Arsenal fans who will look at that squad and go they, they don't, half of them don't look professional enough to want to be able to do that. Yeah, and with Emery's early techniques that were <laughs> lauded in sections of the media, putting gyms next to the side of the training pitch, raising the intensity yeah. and the atmosphere around, Freddie Lundberg then taking over, as Adam says, temporarily, and, and surely the, there was no problem with communication with him. Arsenal still didn't really see an uplift. How do we know it's going to be different with, with Arteta? We don't. Um, do we know that these players are capable of of finding that uplift if they're taught 
differently by Arteta? That, for me, is the big question. We've seen on occasions their performance level can be way higher than it's shown so far. From a few people that I've spoken to, it sounds like around the training ground, and we're only talking Sunday and uh, today, day of recording, Monday, a lot more clarity, a lot of weight lifted off shoulders of not understanding messages. And I think there may have been a bit of a hangover in the Freddie Lundberg period because he was part of the Emery coaching staff. Whether he had that much influence or not, he was part of it. With Arteta, you know, there was just a little thing that came out of uh, Sunday's training session, which was that they were doing the rondos and the Arsenal, a few, quite a few of the Arsenal players were, were just flicking it with a trick to, to elude the defender. And Arteta stopped each time and said, you don't do flicks like that during the match, so why are you doing them now? Put your foot on it, even if it takes a split second longer, and play the pass. So it's hard to know exactly... You're right, I can't provide answers whether they're good enough or whether Arteta is good enough, but just small things that the Arsenal um, decision-makers will hope that he is capable, that he does have it in his armoury to bring this out of these players and that these players are capable... The early, I must admit, I did hear from a few people when the appointment came that some of the senior players were sceptical. Um, and we saw the post on Instagram by Aubameyang's brother um, seemed underwhelmed. Uh, a few other senior players I heard of did raise an eyebrow. This guy's never coached anywhere uh, as, as a number one. That's not a great start if some of the senior players are, are feeling like that. And maybe that's why in his press conference he was so on the front foot and aggressive and it's my way or the highway and you know I really felt he was the sort of person that isn't going to take prisoners but the feeling around the squad coming out of Sunday and uh, and Monday is positive they like him uh, that he's already instilling new installing new things so two things here then Adam firstly Mm. did you like him when you interviewed him and do you think that he has the ability to be a horrible man if he needs to be. I did like him. I think I think most people that, you know, as you guys will know as well, when you sit down with someone for 40 minutes and they've given you their time, then generally, you know, you come away quite liking them because they've mm. they've bothered to speak to you and we all feel quite privileged in, in that surroundings. I didn't get the sense he could be really nasty, to be honest, at the time, but it was also still quite new into his coaching career at that moment and his role at that time was a very different one, actually, even at City. His role evolved as the seasons went on, as, because I think when Arsenal had that interest in him that summer, City responded by giving him a few more responsibilities within Pep's coaching staff as well. So I, I did like him. I think, I think the players will like him. I think there'll be an appreciation also for what he's achieved at Manchester City. Whether, you know, what we don't really know is how much of what City have, has have achieved is down to him. Everywhere Pep has gone, He's produced football teams like this. Arteta wasn't there every time. Mm. Uh, I think it says a lot about Guardiola's reputation in English football, actually, that we're even taking his assistant managers to manage a top six club. It's an extraordinary thing. Nobody took Rui Faria, did they, from from Jose Mourinho's team? Several of Ferguson's assistants, you know, Brian Kidd and Rennie Mernestein and Carlos Kiros, Stephen Clarence, they're all given opportunities, but as you say, never never with the top six one of the top six at the time so it is unusual but Adam how many of these we're talking about number twos have there been a scramble for when they've been uh, retiring as a player and some of them weren't a player at all but you know Pochettino really strongly wanted Arteta he was offered the academy role at Arsenal 
Pep wanted him at Manchester City. He comes in at Manchester City and from what I've heard, and I speak to a lot of people around the club, I've only heard good things. Um, somebody said to me when when the speculation was mounting around Arsenal, um, this we ca- we can't lose him. This would be really bad for Manchester City. You don't realise how influential he is. And we've seen quotes emerge from Pep saying, you know, he he was a manager in waiting. He was almost assuming a manager's role there. When he left on, on the Thursday, he had this um, emotional speech that he gave to players and staff, and they were very sad and sorry to see him go. So. Uh, no, we don't I, I, know what's going to happen, but it suggests that he is slightly different. Yeah, I'm not doubting his his credentials or that or that he's different. I, I I just think that job, you know, that job it's not dissimilar to the Manchester United job. And we've seen people like Louis Van Gaal, Jose Mourinho, Solskjaer, David Moyes, uh, now Unai Emery at Arsenal go into these jobs, and they are huge rebuilding jobs. Just to link this with with Carlo Ancelotti, who is now the new Everton manager, and and in this. Uh, piece on the Athletic, which you contributed to, Adam, as well. The headline there is Carlo Ancelotti is different. He puts players and owners before systems. I mean, this is this is Ancelotti's strength, both managing up and managing down in a man management sense, which is which is very different. If you talk to a lot of players and ex-players, it's something that they feel is disappearing more and more from the game as it becomes more system and tactics obsessed. I think it's humility um, to go into a place and actually be able to say, this is what I have, this is what we can do, this is what these players can do well, and that's, that's how we're going to go about it. I think particularly with the, new, with the generation of coaches that are successful at the moment, a lot of people are coming in and saying, this is how I do it, and therefore this is how you're going to do it. Now, when that works out in cases like Klopp and uh, Guardiola, Pochettino, fantastic. Uh, But there's a lot of cases where that just does not work. Um, So I think Ancelotti's model has always been to say, well, let me look at who's in this dressing room. You know, if that means that we need to go direct in the way that we have under Duncan Ferguson the past few weeks, just to gain a bit of a foothold until I can get some of my own players in, then there's no shame in that. Would that approach have worked at Arsenal? Arsenal made it quite clear early on that Ancelotti wasn't of the profile that they were looking for. We don't have any more explanation for that and there's a good chance we might not get it. Uh, I can only assume it means they were looking for a younger, uh, uh, a training ground coach that is has been succeeding on the training ground very recently and is extremely highly thought of. One of the... Um, it strikes me that Arsenal could do with a bit of man management. Yeah, but I, I'm not siding with them or, or going against them. But um, depending on who you speak to within the game, um, there is a feeling that Ancelotti is not a great training ground coach in terms of the sessions that he puts on. And Arsenal desperately need to be coached uh, very well and with much better training sessions um then there was the arsenal factor as well where arteta wins and that's why patrick vieira clearly came into the frame as well there are many people who think carlo ancelotti would have been the perfect appointment for arsenal i think it would have been a job he would have liked to take he would have liked to return to london and there were people pushing hard for him but arsenal have some very highly paid executives made to research and make these decisions and they didn't think Ancelotti was right for them. Just one. Mm. Just answer the question from uh, Le Professeur on the backroom staff then and what's happening and then we'll move on to Ed Woodward with Adam. So 
Mikel Arteta has confirmed that Freddie Lundberg will stay on as part of the staff. Um, we reported that over the weekend. It was my understanding that Arteta would be bringing in or trying to bring in Kanna, the goalkeeping coach from Brentford, Inaki Kanna. Steve Round, the former Everton, Manchester United, uh, various other assistant managers. He coached Arteta for three years at Everton. They know each other well. Uh, and he has spoken over the weekend, I think, as well, and confirmed that he'll be on the coaching staff. And then I, I was told that, there w- that Arteta was looking for s- a backroom staff of six. And so that would suggest three. I was also told by somebody that there would be a Dutch coach in the mix. One person that's quite interesting that hasn't been reported yet is Aaron Briggs at Manchester City. So he, I think, came through the FA of Wales scheme, similar to Arteta, and I think has held positions at Blackpool, Preston, and then within the Manchester City system. He's young. I think he's 31. So it'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. Another sign of the interesting relationship between the two clubs. Well, that's an interesting one that I'd like to get Adam's view on. Some of the these coaches we're talking about and especially Arsenal um, with their um, admiration for Maurizio Pochettino and we think there was some sort of communication between the parties which ultimately would have led to the the fact that that one wasn't right to happen at this point in time presumably from Pochettino's part because Arsenal I think would have really liked uh, to have considered him in the final stages of their process but somebody like Pochettino would have come in with a ready-made backroom staff and I'm really impressed by Arteta. I was really impressed by him on Friday, the way he spoke, the way he conducted himself, the way people I know in the game speak about him. But I do accept, obviously, the lack of experience factor, but also the, the lack of a backroom staff. Now, people said that was an issue 18 months ago. I've been assured that it wasn't and that Arsenal would have worked with him that summer, 2018, to build a world-class staff. But you can't do that mid-season. In January, you're looking to pick people up here or there. So that why Steve Round, Freddie Lundberg's already there, Canner at Brentford, but we don't even know if that deal has been done. I've spoken to somebody at Brentford that says there has been contact, but it's not confirmed he'll be leaving. And This is more than skeleton. It's a bit um, chaotic. And if you're going to come into a club and give yourself the best chance of succeeding, surely you need, like a Pochettino, to come in with a ready-made team behind you, no, Adam? Totally. And it's, it's not only that, it's also once you're there you're actually developing new relationships. So, okay, Steve Round has coached Arteta before um, at Everton, but they've never been together where Arteta is the senior figure and Steve Round is reporting to him. Um, and that's going to have to be a relation, those relationships that are based on trust and you know judgments and those big decisions that are going to be made in matches such as Chelsea and Manchester United next week um, are going to be from a group of people that have, have probably never sat in a room together before. It's an extraordinary situation for a top six Premier League club. I also think the Youngberg thing is interesting that he's staying, particularly in light of what he said on Saturday about Meza Ozil. You know, if you imagine Meza hearing that news, thinking, oh, God, here we go again, sort of thing, because the new manager will come in very much having heard what, you know, what Freddie said on Saturday. So that just extends that drama once again. I think it's right that Freddie Youngberg stays, but I do think that's an interesting one going forwards, how that relationship develops. Well, Freddie Lundberg would have felt equally qualified to Absolutely. lead Arsenal forward, perhaps even more so given he was already in the position, similar sort of age, he's, he's a bit older than Arteta, obviously, similar backgrounds. That There were people who, who said to me that, that that's going to be 
one that either won't happen or if it does, it will be very difficult. So it's it's, it's one to watch with interest. Uh, let's move it on to uh, Manchester United. Beaten at Watford over the weekend, uh, which raises question marks once again. Uh, about the future of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Uh, Adam wrote a piece for The Athletic recently that probed into the boardroom at Old Trafford, uh, specifically focusing on Ed Woodward. What did those within the club think of Woodward? I think it depends who you speak to. If you speak to the people that own the club, um, they're very enamoured with Ed Woodward. Um, And I think a lot of people still like Woodward. I don't think it's a case of this guy... You know, we don't get on with him. He's difficult. I think a lot of people who, who know him actually quite like him. The issue is that you're now talking about we're coming up to nearly seven years of of systemic failure um, for a club the size of Manchester United. They're not, they've not competed for a Premier League title uh, since he was the guy running the club. If you're looking at the person fundamentally responsible for the state that that squad is in, it is Ed Woodward. For the last seven years, there's been one person who's been charged with the ultimate responsibility of leading Manchester United's recruitment um, and leading their choice of managers and leading whichever path they want to go down. And Woodward has been at the heart of that for, for for almost seven years now. He will always have the trust of the Glazer family because he was the the story goes that when when the Glazers were attempting to take over Manchester United, the deal was so highly leveraged at the time that a lot of banks were saying no. Edward Wood was the J.P. Morgan, I think, banker, who who said yes. He was the one that could make it happen, that made it happen. And at the time, he was apparently the, a sort of a mid-level banker, and that meant that he had the day-to-day contact with the client. So he was the one talking day in, day out to the Glazer family, and then once the takeover happened, he, he later became their, what the Americans would call chief of, chief of staff. It would take so much for that relationship to break. For United to now get rid of Solskjaer would be for Woodward to admit once again he's got it wrong. That's why, I think that's ultimately why Solskjaer will get more time. Yeah, I mean, people I speak to at United, even today, straight after the Watford match, uh, are saying that they are completely yeah. uh, faithful to the project and the process, uh, the vision laid out by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in conjunction with Ed Woodward and the executives. Uh, We've talked before about when their transfer planning starts. It's around September time each year. They plan towards the following summer. If they can do some deals in January, then they'll happen. If they can't, then they continue on the the path towards the summer and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is at the centre of that. Of course, we've seen in the case of Arsenal, which was quite similar, if results and atmosphere get out of hand, then that's a different matter. One thing I can't get my head around, Adam, is why on earth a United so hell-bent on not appointing a footballing go-between to smooth that process between Solskjaer and Ed Woodward and, and the executive decision-makers. Why don't they help him out? And is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer effectively the director of football? I had a really interesting conversation with someone recently who works in recruitment at a different Premier League club, and they, they actually theorised that Sir Alex Ferguson was a European-style director of football at Manchester United. And actually what was happening was he would get a head coach in, someone like Carlos Quiroz or uh, René Mullenstein or Steve McLaren, and that would be the real on-the-training-ground coaching. And Ferguson would be a man-manager 
um, the recruiter yeah. and the guy who set the standards. And I think there's something in that. And, yeah. I, and there was quite an interesting piece, I think, by Andy Mitten recently um, on The Athletic, where he was saying he thinks maybe United actually need just another coach in that backroom staff with a, with a big vision. So have they shelved a, a director of football plan then, given what you've just yeah. said there? Yeah. Uh, because I mean, I know... You know, I hear from people who've, who've spoken to United, uh, you know, about the process of a director of football, and they might hear something one week and then nothing for two months after that. I think when Jose Mourinho was sacked, all the indications were that they were going to get in a director of football. They then had this series of meetings with a number of different people. I think Rio Ferdinand was involved at one point. Darren Fletcher was involved at one point. Mike Phelan held talks about maybe going to a more senior role, and then that disappeared again because I think Solskjaer wanted to keep him close to him then it's just fallen away and past me you know a year down the line you would think that if it's going to happen it would have happened by now because recruitment not only for January but for the summer it's already started right you know these discussions as David said they start in September so if you're getting in a director of football or a new head of recruitment or whatever you want to call that role their actual tangible impact wouldn't be coming till maybe next January or the summer after, by then United could have a different manager again. But, so, yeah. you your, your Ferguson point um, mm. about him almost holding a de facto director of football position, are you suggesting that that is what Solskjaer's almost assuming now with the backing that United have given to his vision, etc.? And if so, how can you rely on Solskjaer's contacts? And I'm not saying it's him alone. They've got a, an established scouting network, Marcel Boot, etc., Jim Lawler and, and many others who are, are well-regarded within the game. But um, do they realise the importance and the um, the clout and the connections that these top um European or global directors of football, sporting directors, call it what you like, technical directors have. And I'm not saying they work everywhere because Monchi worked at Sevilla but didn't work at Roma. But there are people in these positions around world football who are brilliant at their jobs. And it just seems a bit remiss of United not to have somebody playing that role. I, I totally agree. I, I would say that I think the players they signed in the summer have been good signings. Yeah. You know, Maguire, James... Juan Bissaka, I think they'll become really good players for Man United. And I think, you know, if they were to get Haaland as well, I know that seems all a bit in the balance at the moment, then, yeah, another another good signing. And But the question is, and I don't actually dispute that Solskjaer's done some really good things at Man United. I think some of the players he's moved out were the right thing to do. Some of the players he's promoted and given opportunities to are the right thing to do. The question is just, there's no evidence base to be saying that he is the right person actually to be coaching this team going forwards you know the performance yesterday was a performance that that would have, that got david moyes sacks that's how bad it was yeah. yesterday was, you, can, you, you, you can't see what they're trying to achieve you can't see what work is going on on the on the training ground really no. that 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 is a, a would be a massive worry for the hierarchy just one final thing adam whilst david puts his feet up and doesn't write anything <laughs> you appear to be writing everything at the moment um and you had a fascinating piece last week about audiences for football and how they're changing. We don't have a great deal of time to, to properly delve yeah. into it, but there are a couple of really interesting points. One is that more people now watch YouTube highlights of Premier League games rather than the live Premier League games themselves. The fundamental question of the piece was, is the 90-minute football format sustainable you know, for 50 years' time, 100 years' sure. time, or is the, the, the evidence suggesting that people maybe will want something different 
well, I think all the evidence when you survey young, the young age groups is that people would want something different. But football is so conservative, and rightly so, you would say, that it will obviously stick with that. But there are these discussions going on amongst top-ranking European clubs about how they can tap into that base, whether that's devising new competitions or devising new formats. Does it mean, you know, cricket 2020, but some sort of football equivalent to that? Could that ever happen? And I think where it, where it will be interesting is if live TV audience reach continues to fall, that means that those huge broadcasting rights deals become less valuable. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the underlying desire has changed, and and that's no. perhaps why uh, the audiences who come to Match of the Day too are so hungry to huge, see Mark every huge, week. Huge. Um, but certainly the choice has, and and therefore sure. uh, the ability to watch once once you have the option of bite-sized goals or clips, you suddenly realise that that's more convenient for your schedule, and also the competition from elsewhere. I, I remember the talking to the Premier League a few years ago, and and Richard Scudamore was was asking a few of us what do you think is the biggest challenge to the Premier League? And people were saying uh, 2020 cricket or rugby or whatever. And um, and he said, no, no one could get it. And it was esports. And yes. so the, the the difference of options, the fragmentation of, of you know, your, your entertainment viewing and also within that, the different options of bite size and... Um, and various different ways of consuming it has turned things on it on its head, really. Apart yeah. from match of the day too. Apart from match of the day too. What what will be interesting going forward is when Ronaldo and Messi finally hang up their boots. What happens to Champions League figures when so much of the Champions League growth has been through their career? And then you bring it to another level, Adam, and your anecdote about a Championship player in your piece and what that championship player's agent said to him. Yeah, so this was this was a player who had been basically been told by... So players now have different agents. One who may do the contract negotiations will be more on the legal side and then you'll have uh, commercial advisors. And one of these commercial advisors had said, one of the ways for you to grow your social media following is if you start doing a few more tricks and flicks during games, which would obviously upset Mikel Arteta a lot, um, <laughs> given that earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they were saying, you know, if we can get, because it's so difficult to get, champ, you know, championship football doesn't always go viral on on Twitter in the way that a Premier League yeah. game game will, for example. So if we can get you doing a few stepovers or a, a Rabona cross, for example, then that will get you however many retweets, which then grows your commercial brand, which then makes it easier for us to secure a sponsorship deal for you going forward. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone's doing this or even that that player, I don't think actually that player even did it. He said no straight away. But the fact that these discussions are taking place certainly shows that players, players are, there are some players now who are more valuable than clubs. Brilliant to have you on, Adam. Thank you. Thank you, mate. Pleasure. Shri G, any legs in Xhaka to her to Berlin? That's not one that I know about. However, that's not to say it wouldn't happen. I think it would make an element of sense it largely depends on what Mikel Arteta thinks of Xhaka and what Xhaka's intentions are it could be absolutely conceivable um there are people within Arsenal who think extremely highly of uh, Xhaka it's not a particularly high bar but they think that he's their best central midfielder uh, statistically and 
anecdotally in terms of leadership and character and personality. So I don't think Arsenal will be rushing him out the door as quickly as many people outside of the club would like to think. Uh, but it's a two-way thing. We don't know what he's thinking either and, and what his value would be. Send questions into us. They don't have to be about Arsenal. Contractually, this podcast doesn't have to be about Arsenal. There I'll is... give you an answer to, to one that hasn't even been asked, but we were talking about Manchester United right. earlier. Paul Pogba absolutely not leaving Manchester United in January. The reason I bring it up is that I've had loads of questions to me on social media, despite what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer said, and is that a tactic to keep his value high? But, um, I mean, Mino Raiola said it in, a, in an interview yeah. with the Daily Telegraph as well. No exit for Pogba, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw a couple of ins. Laurie Whitwell's reported on The Athletic, two central midfielders and a striker. We know the Haaland situation, uh, which remains complicated by Mino Raiola. So, yeah, I just thought I'd throw something no, good. non-Arsenal good. related in there. Well thrown in. <laughs> uh, make sure you subscribe to The Athletic. All the articles that we mentioned are there in full. You can read them uh, at your leisure. And you can get a 40% discount on that subscription by going to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman. So athletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman and you'll get a 40% discount on your subscription. Uh, all the podcasts are completely free. Loads are going to drop on Christmas Day, which sounds a recipe for disaster for family relations, but you can get loads on Christmas Day. And we will be back in the new year uh, with even more. So uh, Merry Christmas. Thank you very much for listening. Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. <laughs>